Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. In 2016, I got an email from someone named Jed Barish. It was in my capacity as an editor for a journal called Neurocase. And he warned me that the paper that he was submitting was a bit odd. It was about people who had taken opioids and then become amnestic, and that it had somehow affected the hippocampus. This was odd, because after all, for my graduate work, I studied the hippocampus. I thought I knew about as much as most people who spend a lot of time, decades even, studying the hippocampus knew. And I'd never heard of an amnestic syndrome that came from using too many opioids. But I sent his paper out to reviews and more reviews. And they all came back really positive. People were intrigued. It seemed like something that hadn't really been, well, discovered before, but that something that it was real. A few years later, he wrote a review paper in the same journal that we published of several more of these cases. So it wasn't just a single case. And then I got an email from him just a few months ago And he told me that a science journalist had written a book about these cases and that I should read it. And he was exactly right. Lauren Aguirre wrote a book called The Memory Thief, all about these odd ways in which our memories can be hijacked by the things that we do, including the drugs that we take. Lauren Aguirre, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with you. So... You also met Jed. Tell me about your first uh, encounters with him. Well, it wasn't my first encounter, but it was uh, maybe the encounter that set me on the path to writing this book because um, I had my own experience of of bizarre memory loss. Um, In my case, it started with these brief episodes of, of deja vu and not like many people think sort of like, oh, have I been here before? But no. I have been in exactly this spot doing exactly this thing. And you know that can't be true, so you know it's weird. But I didn't think much of it. And then one morning I had an episode of what is called jamais vu, which is a feeling of I have never been here before. I've never seen this before. So all of a sudden, you know, I was in a room that was completely unfamiliar to me. 
nothing made any sense. And I didn't even know who I was. So, you know, if you'd walked into the room and said, hi, I'm Indre, I, I could not have told you my name. So I lay down because it was so scary with my face on the floor and my eyes shut. And then when it passed, I took myself to the doctor and she said, oh, that sounds like a seizure. Maybe you have a brain tumor. So I did have a brain abnormality and I was told by the chief of neurosurgery at a Boston hospital that I should have surgery and I didn't like that idea. So I asked for a lot of second opinions and one of them was an informal uh, opinion from Jed Barish, who was a neighbor. And he came over, he looked at the scan and he said, ah, this is, this is a nothing burger, you know, take your medicine and you'll be fine. And he was right. So I take an anti-seizure medication every day and I, I never had another episode like that. But that definitely left me with an appreciation for how bizarre the brain can be and an appreciation for sort of how pragmatic and reasonable he is. Um, so we sort of shared that, that fascination with strange brains so that when this syndrome came up, I started talking to him about it. I have to say that, you know, in my capacity as as an associate editor at Neurocase, which I, I did that for over 10 years, I'm not, I just recently stepped down. And I would get a lot of bizarre cases uh, sent to us. And, you know, we had a pretty high rejection rate because oftentimes, you know, a single person's anomaly, you know, doesn't really advance the science forward. And we can't always really understand what's happening from a single case. And I remember first, you know, reading some of this work and thinking, is this going to be another one of those things where it was just like a weird coincidence that, you know, people, you know, had had this, this, this history of, of opioid overuse and they also happened to have, you know, temporal lobe epilepsy or something like that that somehow went undiagnosed. And it wasn't until I really sort of, you know, delved it more deeply into his work and also, you know, just recognized that, yeah, he seems very practical. He seems like not the kind of person that would take an anecdote and, you know, make all these grand conclusions from it. And so anyway, it was, it, it's really interesting. It, it's rare, though, that we have, you know, a few of these cases that come and that, that really change uh, a very well-established view of how memory works, and especially in the hippocampus. Because, you know, the hippocampus is actually a part of the brain that got me first interested in neuroscience because there was a very famous patient named H.M., Henry Mollison, in the 1950s who had epilepsy and had surgery to remove his medial temporal lobe. So that is the part of the brain that includes the hippocampus on both sides. And it was found that even though he could still, say, learn a new skill, he couldn't learn any new facts or remember any new events. He had this profound amnesia. And uh, it was the first time that we recognized that memory is compartmentalized in the brain and that the hippocampus specifically has a really important role to play. And so it's really interesting for me to hear your experience and, you know, we'll get to the, you know, science that you describe in your book because, you know, you're a really, you know, great science writer and there's a lot of science there. But I'm also just this book is so special to me because you've ha you had this experience. And as a memory researcher, there's a part of me sometimes that, you know, I can never really understand, you know, what it must be like to lose a sense of yourself just because this one area is offline. No, I mean, it was definitely memorable. And because I have epilepsy, this syndrome is actually a particular concern to me because, you know, the hippocampus is a very, is a region very susceptible to seizures. So, you know, I, I definitely want to 
uh, protect my brain. Not, not that I'm an opioid user, but opioids are prescribed frequently and used in surgeries every day around the world. So it, it does, it, it did make, make me think a little harder. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about that in a, in, a, in a minute. But I first want to just get back to that experience that you had of jamais vu and the sort of the, the deja vus that came before that. And do you think that deja vus were more common in your case because they were sort of maybe either mini seizures or precursors or auras? Or do you think that's just unrelated? Oh, no, I think they almost certainly were auras. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not normal to have deja vu frequently. I mean, I think it happens to people, but it's it's not a normal thing for it to happen a lot. And it was happening increasingly more frequent. I just didn't kind of pay attention until I had this sort of reverse phenomenon. But it's probably really the same thing, which is just your brain, your neurons aren't firing in a coordinated fashion. And so in the second instance, and it was clearly a much more extreme experience because I also felt kind of nauseated. And that's also a classic part of auras. And aura is just a name for something before it becomes a full-blown seizure. And I felt really scared. And some of that fear was probably just because, wow, it's scary to not know where you are. But also that sense of impending doom is also a classical sign of a seizure. So it's hard to disentangle all the pieces. It's so interesting to me that this that this one brain region, you know, we know it's part of a network. We know that it doesn't act in isolation. And we know, you know, that it, it has all of these connections, but that it could have a, such a specific experience, you know, one that we consider so close to our very essence of who we are, right? Like your sense that you've been in a place before, that you've seen something before, that you know your name and you have a personal history. I mean, all of that seems to have been disrupted for you by these seizures. And yet, like, what else are you rather than this kind of essence of like, you know, you're Lauren and you've gone through these life experiences? Yeah. I mean, I'm just grateful that it only lasted a couple of minutes because there are people like HM or like another patient, Clive Waring, who had even more damage than than HM, who truly, he had like a 30-second memory. So for him, it was all gone, the past and the present and the future. Just to further complicate matters, though. Yeah, I think, I think he's still alive. Uh, he is still alive. Yes. I spoke with his um, neuropsychologist. But I was going to say, just to further complicate matters, like my abnormality is not in my hippocampus, so I can't explain what's going on there. It's actually in my right frontal lobe. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. And oh, that's interesting. Huh. Huh. And yet it had these like very like canonical hippocampal sim- symptoms. Well, yeah, see, it's even more complicated. <laughs> yes. It's always more complicated than you think. And of course, the hippocampus has... Yeah, lots of connections to the frontal lobe. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the core of the cases that Jed uh, uh, sort of talked to me about or or sent the the case studies about in the review paper and that you start your book with, actually. Um, So I think the the first case is a 25-year-old man, I believe, named Owen Rivers. Am I getting that right? Yes. So actually, I, I do open the book with his case because... He later uh, went on to become sort of the canonical case study because they had enough information about him before and during and after. But 
Then I backtracked to 2012, which was when the first patient came to attention at Leahy Hospital, where um, Jed was a neurologist and several other neurologists saw him. So this young man came into the hospital, first Winchester, and they didn't know what to make of him. He had overdosed on what he thought was heroin and couldn't remember anything for more than 30 seconds. So at Winchester, they sent him over to Leahy, and he had this very bizarre pattern of damage to the hippocampus, just the hippocampus, which, as you say, is unusual and, you know, a 30-second memory. So they didn't know what to make of it. Maybe it was a stroke. And so they sent him home without a diagnosis and thought that that would be an interesting case report. But of course, doctors are, are really busy and it didn't happen. And then a little over two years later, a patient came into Jed's office um, from New Hampshire for a second opinion with his wife and his mother. And he had been left alone or had decided to stay home alone over a weekend. And when his family came back, he, like the first patient, uh, couldn't remember anything new. And eight weeks later, it was the same thing. Now, the radiologist actually hadn't like pointed out anything unusual on the scan, but when he came into Jed's office, it was clear he was very amnestic. And then when he put the scan in, it looked exactly like the first patient's brain scan with damage to the hippocampus on both sides. So at that point, Jed said, well, what's the connection here? Because he's also uh, has training as an epidemiologist. So he sort of looks for these patterns. And the um, second patient had also had a history of, of heroin use. But people have been using heroin for many decades. So why all of a sudden at the same hospital, a couple of years apart, would this be happening? But at the same time that this was happening, fentanyl was beginning to infiltrate the drug supply. And so that seemed to be the new event. So Jed took it to the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts. And um, the state epidemiologist there, Al Maria, said, you know, interesting. If you find a few more cases, let me know. And he also approached the CDC who said, you know, maybe, but could be a coincidence. And then within about nine months, two more patients showed up at Leahy. So then there was that cluster of four, which is what he submitted to NeuroCase. And that's when the Department of Public Health said, okay, there's something going on here. Let's try to figure out how common this is. Are there other people out there? So they put out an alert, and within minutes, they started getting emails back from neurologists with questions, with saying, oh, I think I've seen this. So it was happening to other people, and it's just, it's just not been reported. So can you describe a little bit about sort of what we know about what's happening, and is it, you know, it seems like fentanyl is the, the kind of missing link here that, as you mentioned, like people have been using heroin for centuries and that hasn't seemed to have been reported. What is different about fentanyl and, and its effect uh, here and, and, and how it seems to have the, and these long-term effects on, on these patients' brains? Well, fentanyl is, is just much more potent than heroin. It, it does have a different structure, but it's not clear that that different structure is what makes a difference. It's just that it's more potent. And it's a class of opioid that docks onto a certain receptor called a mu opioid receptor. And there are two classes of neurons in the brain. I'm sure you know this, inhibitory neurons and excitatory neurons. Most people think about the excitatory neurons. Hey, we got a signal, pass it on. You know, they're kind of stupid. 
And then there are these inhibitory neurons, which are the real brains of the system. And they're kind of like one scientist described them to me as the bouncers at the bar. And if they go out of commission, things get out of control. So they kind of time things and tell other neurons when to stop talking. So fentanyl shuts down those inhibitory neurons rather than turning them on. So suddenly all the bouncers are asleep and it's chaos. And, and then the excitatory neurons are firing too quickly. There's no one to control them. This person also might very likely be somewhat oxygen deprived since fentanyl suppresses the drive to breathe. So they're basically having little mini seizures and the brain can't keep up and the neurons don't get enough energy and some of them die. Yeah. So one of the reasons why there's such a link between, you know, epilepsy and the hippocampus is because the the hippocampus is particularly excitable. And, you know, there's some suspicion that 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 the reason that that's important for forming new long term memories is that you want to have, you know, reactive neurons. Right. So that if there is an event that is important, those neurons will capture it um, somehow in terms of their firing patterns and so forth. So, so that's why it's, it's not, it's, it's not coincidental that you have this one area that makes new long-term memories also be prone to seizures. And so it's interesting to hear too about like how, yeah, there's this drug that has this excitability factor. And so then it would, it's not that other parts of the brain don't get the fentanyl. It's just that this particular part of the brain is sparkier. And so it has a higher likelihood of damaging these neurons. Right. It's sort of um, poised on a knife's edge. It has to be ready to put everything together really quickly. The next sort of direction that um, I want to talk about, you know, that you take in your book is this connection with Alzheimer's disease. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of kind of what people think are the mechanisms behind Alzheimer's disease and, and how this new research is, is shining a light in a different direction? The hippocampus is one of the first regions to be damaged in Alzheimer's disease, in most cases of Alzheimer's disease. And that's why uh, the first symptoms are usually memory loss. So of course, um, in these patients, the hippocampus is what's damaged and that's pretty much where the damage ends and their, their symptoms are limited to memory loss. But the sort of reigning theory for many, many years was that amyloid beta, which is a protein that can accumulate in toxic plaques, was really the reason for Alzheimer's disease. So there are, there are two kinds of proteins that accumulate in Alzheimer's disease. One is amyloid beta and the other are tau tangles. But tau tangles kind of, no one really particularly paid attention to them for, for a very long time, even though they were seen in the first patient. And there are a number of reasons why amyloid beta really took the spotlight. So for starters, they made animal models, mice animal models that created a lot of amyloid beta. They were genetically engineered to just churn out lots of it. And those mice had problems with memory. And then when they cleared the amyloid beta, when they gave them drugs to get rid of the amyloid beta, the mice did a lot better. There were also the genes that were associated with early onset Alzheimer's, familial Alzheimer's, all had to do with the processing of amyloid beta. So the pieces of the puzzle kind of fit together, and that started the amyloid cascade hypothesis, and, and pretty much that was the direction of, of a lot of uh, drug research for many, many years, you know, culminating most recently with the FDA approval of Biogen's drug Aduhelm. But all along, there were some researchers who were saying, well, hold up, what about tau? And 
is amyloid beta really the fundamental problem? Or is it, as one scientist put it to me, is amyloid beta kind of like the fire alarms saying there's something going wrong in the brain? And it's like you called the fire department, they showed up, they turned off the smoke alarms and said, you know, job done, we're fine, but they leave in the building still burning. So what's the role of tau? And is that one of the proteins that we should really be going after not necessarily instead, but certainly as well. And one of the connections with the amnestic syndrome is that tau tangles have actually been found in the brains of deceased chronic opioid users in a couple of studies in Europe. In, in one young man, he was only 17 years old, and he had a really abnormal accumulation of, of tau tangles in the hippocampus. So there's an interesting link there. And another link is that hyperactivity, we were talking about how opioids sort of shut down the inhibitory neurons, which creates too much activity, that hyperactivity is a phenomenon very early on in Alzheimer's disease. And that's only really in the last 10 or so years been recognized as as a phenomenon that's pathological. It's not sort of making up for dying neurons. It's actually interfering with memory formation in the first place. And that's a phenomenon of aging, and then it's worse in people with amnestic cognitive impairment, which is usually the the precursor to Alzheimer's disease. So there really are kind of a number of, of converging lines of evidence that suggest that there's something about how opioids damage the hippocampus that could potentially be used as the basis for a new animal model for, for a new animal model for Alzheimer's disease. And it's also given rise to an idea that Perhaps using anti-opioids like naltrexone or naloxone, could that serve as a therapy to kind of stave off or slow down memory loss in patients with Alzheimer's disease? Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... And producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes, the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece with nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. 
as you mentioned, like this is what makes the story so great is that now we have a bunch of these converging lines of evidence, including a kind of mechanistic one. Uh, because I think for a lot of people, and you kind of write about this in your book as well, when individuals overdosed and you know they were found in, in the hospital they and they re- were revived and then they had memory loss, I think a lot of people just attributed the amnestic syndrome, if there was one, to lack of oxygen, you know, that that can be something that happens when a person, you know, loses consciousness. And so, you know, and we know that because the hippocampus is particularly active, it's sparky, as I mentioned before, it requires a lot of uh, oxygen to in order to survive. Like it's, we call it sort of metabolically costly. It, it, It needs a lot of oxygen to fuel it and to keep it going. And so when you have um, lack of oxygen to the brain, the hippocampus is usually uh, the first part of the brain or one of the first parts of the brain to be affected. But that doesn't seem to hold up in terms of what happened in, in these patients. So, so tell us a little bit about the discovery that it wasn't, in fact, oxygen deprivation that was causing this amnestic syndrome in patients who were overdosing or who, t- who took fentanyl. Well, if I can first just tell you about um, kind of the skepticism, because it's interesting. I did find this pattern when I uh, went and spoke with other people, and I probably interviewed about 100 people and neuroscientists and doctors. And doctors, for the most part, always expressed skepticism at first. They said, oh, isn't this just hypoxia? But, you know, after I talked them through it, they're like, okay, yeah, I could see that. Whereas neuroscientists like would sometimes finish my sentence before I even got through explaining it. They'd say, oh, of course, the neurons are, you know, excitotoxicitying themselves to death. Like they got it immediately. And I just thought that was so interesting, the difference there, depending on their backgrounds. But one other really important line of evidence that that showed that it's not just hypoxia, which is you know, clearly hypoxia would would exacerbate the situation. But um, there is an anesthesiologist at the University of Pennsylvania who who actually began to wonder about opioids in the context of anesthesia long ago in the late 80s and was concerned about their ability to cause seizures in in people and could that cause damage. So um, he did a whole series of studies over the course of 20 years, both in animals and in people, and found that even when he supported the rats so that there was no hypoxia, they had damage to the hippocampus. And he also did experiments with people where um, he gave them a very fast-acting dose of a fentanyl analog and supported them uh, with their breathing. And they also had this excessive activation. There was no damage, but the hippocampus was uniquely sort of activated and burning through a lot of glucose. And then he took that a little further and thought, well, is there a connection with Alzheimer's disease? So he did a larger study, and some of the people in that study were APOE4 carriers, which is the major genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And they had more activation in the hippocampus and the others had less. So, you know, certainly these were not large studies, but they all sort of continued to point to some sort of connection. So he was absolutely thrilled to hear from Jed Barish, who got connected to him through Jed's father is, is an anesthesiologist, and said, you know, I knew someone was going to come along eventually and connect the dots. Um, so they've continued to work together and actually 
Kofke just got word from the National Institutes of Health that they're and I think it was actually NIDA, that their proposal to look at opioid use in long-term chronic users who are taking opioids as prescribed for pain, are they suffering um, subtle memory impairment and damage to the hippocampus that's gone under the radar? I mean, I think this is one of the things that's really scary and and, and a real take-home from your book is that this isn't something that is restricted to people who are addicted to opioids. This is something that could affect anyone who's in an accident. And you describe a number of, of, of cases in which that is, in, including a doctor at the Memory and Aging Center, you know, Butler, who had his own experience there. And I, I should say that I was at the Memory and Aging Center as a postdoc, and that's actually how I first became an editor on NeuroCase. I worked with Bruce Miller for my postdoctoral fellowship. And so, you know, I know a lot of the characters in your book personally, and yet, you know, it wasn't until you, I kind of read your book that it sort of put all these pieces together and made me realize that this is, this is something that everybody needs to worry about because at any point we can be in an injury and opioids are so quickly prescribed for pain these days that it's something that we need to think about. Yeah. By the same token, you know, I, I don't want people to be unduly concerned. This absolutely should be studied and I'm glad that it finally will be studied. I think it's highly unlikely that sort of you, you take opioids or you take your Vicodin because you had your, your teeth pulled and that there's going to be a problem there long term but but it is a concern for people who are taking them long term high dose as prescribed for chronic pain and it's you know it's not even clear that that is particularly effective but yeah that's something that should be studied there's another big theme in your book that I wanted to sort of talk about because there's a lot of controversy in the science about this. And, you know, I, I think you you probably are better aware of what the latest research is than I am. Um, and it's whether or not uh, and the role in which new neurons in the adult brain might have. So just to give some context to our listeners, you know, there was a, a long time in which neuroscientists thought that no new neurons were born once a person reaches adulthood. And then it was found in rodents um, that, in fact, there are two areas of the brain, one being the hippocampus and another being another area, the olfactory cortex, um, also in, in, and then ultimately a part of the brain involved in learning new habits. So two parts of the brain involved in creating new long-term memories seem to have evidence of neurogenesis, of new neurons being grown in adults. And then a few years ago came a, a very kind of well-researched study that called that into question, uh, that found, you know, little to no evidence of new neurons in the adult brain. And then, you know, there, now this controversy. So, you know, th there's a bit of back and forth about it. And this is important because if we understand sort of, if we want to understand how memories are formed, then understanding whether new neurons are born after adulthood is a big part of that. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the neurogenesis story and how that fits in with the, the science that you're reporting? Yeah, I actually spoke with those researchers who did that study at, at UCSF. And I know that um, everyone I spoke with about the study also said, this is, this is really well done. And it did create a stir. There was a, a blog post I read called WTF, No New Neurogenesis, which I, I cited in, in my index. But I, I think that most of the evidence does point to the growth of new neurons. And it's very hard to study because you stain, you know, the person dies 
And it's not clear, you know, how quickly do you get to preserve that brain and what has happened in between, you know, it was several years ago. So it's a little too long ago for me to remember the exact critiques of the study. But I think since then, more studies have come out showing neurogenesis. So, you know, I think the consensus in the field is really that that it does happen. But what's interesting is what's the purpose? It's also very clear that it's much more common early, you know, in infancy, infancy, and then it slows way down as people age, which explains perhaps why little kids don't remember a lot of stuff or anything from before a certain age that in terms of sort of an explicit memory that they can share. Because if all these new neurons are coming and infiltrating the hippocampus, you know, the connection patterns that were holding memories just aren't there anymore. They're sort of constantly being erased. So what is the relationship between neurogenesis and the fentanyl memory story? Is there one? I don't know that they know that there is one. I don't think there's a, there's an obvious connection. It was certainly, so the idea is that exercise enhances neurogenesis. So that's certainly one of the prescriptions that Monroe Butler gave the patient who I opened the book with, Owen Rivers, you know, a prescription for brain health is exercise to promote neurogenesis and, you know, eat well, um, sleep well, reduce stress, all the things that anyone should do to protect their brain health is what was prescribed for Owen. What's interesting about him is that he had always been concerned about memory loss and always been very interested in in studying memory and studying the brain. So he actually already knew all about neurogenesis when Butler called him up and said, you should exercise more to promote neurogenesis. You know, they had sort of joked about it in the lab, like, what's the optimal way to learn something? Should you, should you run before you learn so that you've got all these new neurons coming up or, or after? So, you know, he was actually kind of disappointed by that advice because he already was doing it. I think that's what, what's really interesting is that, like, you know, we don't have a lot of ways in which we can help people who have profound memory loss, including people who have Alzheimer's disease. In fact, there's, you know, it's very controversial that this new drug recently has been approved by, you know, the FDA because a lot of clinicians look at the data and just don't see any efficacy. And yet exercise does seems to stay stave off cognitive decline and the and and I think the the idea is that the, maybe there is this relationship with with kind of growing new neurons in in the hippocampus um, because you know when we look at uh, mice that run we do see it tur- it turns on neurogenesis and that you know this can have a, a whole cascade of events and so I just think it's really interesting to think about the best we can do is say to people, be active. <laughs> and yet, you know, and even though we know quite a bit about sort of the mechanisms of how this works. Yeah. And be active early, like, like start when you're young. It's, it's always good to start any time, but start when you're young, because at a certain point, if enough neurons have died in the hippocampus, like where are you going to put the new ones? They have to integrate into a structure. So if there's too much damage, you know, it doesn't matter how many new neurons you create. In the some ways, we're we're getting close now to an explanation of why people, you know, whose quote unquote minds are more active later on, seem to also stave off some of the some of the memory decline that that happens with age or that happens even with Alzheimer's disease. Um, the the idea was that they sort of have more resources to draw from, but there's also some evidence that if you're physically active, and you do grow new neurons, then in order to 
incorporate those new neurons into your brain, you need to learn a new skill or need to learn something new. Otherwise, those neurons, like they just don't get, they're, they, they're kind of useless to you. So th- this evidence comes from rodent work where, yeah, like, you know, when the, the mice were, you know, they, they tracked that they were, they were giving running wheels, but also an enriched environment in which they, you know, they could learn something new, then those neurons stuck around. But if they didn't have an enriched environment, then those neurons, you know, died. Right, right. So, I mean, all of this sort of suggests it's going to be hard to put this in a pill. You have to exercise if you can. You have to eat right. You have to use your brain. It just goes back to brain health, which, I mean, but all of these things, there really is good evidence that it will sort of put a cognitive reserve in your brain bank account that you can draw on, you know, as you age. And I wonder now, since you've had this experience of the seizure and it having this kind of profound effect on on your your memory and sort of what you know about yourself, if it happens again, do you think you will have the wherewithal to not be as anxious? What, what do you think that would be like? Actually, I think it would make me very anxious <laughs> um, because it would make me wonder, well, what has changed? So, you know, I for for a number of years had MRIs really frequently, like I've probably had a dozen MRIs and I don't, I don't have them frequently anymore because nothing's changed in there. But if I were to suddenly start having seizures, it would suggest that, that that abnormality was, was changing and growing and that I actually would need surgery. So besides writing this book, how has your experience changed, you know, your mind? Well, it was very hard to write the book. So I feel like I did myself a service in terms of improving my cognitive reserve. They say that you can't just sort of like do the crossword puzzle or do a lot of Sudokos. Like you have to stretch your brain. And I definitely uh, stretched my brain a lot. So it, it changed me in that way. But it also made me you know, more worried. Unfortunately, you, once you know all these things that, that aren't good for your brain, like, like lack of sleep, then you wake up in the middle of the night and you say, am I accumulating, you know, tau tangles in my hippocampus because I'm not sleeping. So those are the dark days, but you know, for the most part, it's really better to know, you know, what you can do to take care of yourself than to sort of focus on all the things that might, might go wrong. I also, I had COVID very early on, in the pandemic, like in, in April of 2020. And I, I lost my sense of smell. So now I try not to read those papers that, you know, suggest that that might also not be so good for your brain long term. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're still controversial about whether, yeah. I mean, and I think, yeah. So, so you mentioned that because the olfactory bulb has a direct link to your memories. And there's this idea, you know, there's this question of whether COVID, you know, the fact that we lose our sense of smell, does that mean that it's crossed, you know, into the brain? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I did, I did get my sense of smell. I did get my sense of smell back pretty quickly. So yeah. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. Good, good. But yeah, there's definitely evidence that, that uh, people with, with severe COVID at least um, do have, all kinds of cognitive uh, uh, symptoms. And so it's, it, is, it is something that I think we're going to have to touch upon again um, as, we, as we understand what's happening in the disease. But, you know, the other thing I'd like to say is that about losing your memory and how scary it is, this patient, Owen Rivers, who, who I focus on in the book and who wrote an essay for the end of it, you know, his memory loss is almost certainly permanent. 
but he still remembers his past and he still has this executive function and ability to plan his life and the friendships that he had from before, that he still has a meaningful life. It's not like his life is over by any means. And I think that's really important to remember also when people get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's that, you know, they're still there. And for many, many years, they can still have productive lives, meaningful lives, meaningful connections. Um, and I just think it's important not to kind of lose sight of that. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're exactly right. And thank you for pointing that out. Um, because I, I think sometimes when we see a patient like Clive Waring, who seems to be constantly, he, he describes himself as like, he's, he's constantly waking up because he feels like he's just conscious for the first time. We get the sense that, you know, what's, what's, what's happening in his life, you know, because it doesn't have la- a lasting quality that somehow is meaningless. And that is its own conundrum um, as we think about, you know, what does it mean to be alive if you can experience something in the moment but can't remember it? Does that mean that you've actually ever experienced it? Right. So I want to remind our listeners um, that Lauren Aguirre's book, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember, uh, is available at booksellers everywhere. Lauren, thank you so much uh, for coming on to Inquiring Minds. And I'm going to send another email back to Jed and and thank him. for bringing your book to my attention as well as, you know, his original work, because it's just been really fascinating to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you as well. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer, Awald, Dale Amaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.